Signing off for Ryan Scannell and Dennis Dahlman, I'm Andrew Hausman, leaving with a good night and go blue. If Pandora's box is a box of chocolates, would I know to stay away? What's that? And off his box, the box of chocolates. Would I eat them anyway? Cause every time I have half a mind to leave you, babe, that means I have half a mind to stay. It's Pandora's Lunchbox on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Good evening, this is Mike. And Pandora's Lunchbox is a show about food every Thursday evening at 6 30. It occurred to me that about a year ago, it was very, very cold. It was, well, back in the day when a polar vortex was a polar vortex. And about a year ago, I decided to do a whole show about winter food stories. Not necessarily folk tales, although one of them was a folk tale. And I'd like to bring that show back to you, as a matter of fact, in just a moment here. But first of all, a winter food story that has a happy ending. Uh, justice was served yesterday for the Friendship Nine, who dared to pursue happiness, the right to eat food wherever they wanted. Some background first. The first sit-in of this kind that we're going to talk about happened in February 1960. Four black students from a college in North Carolina sat down at a segregated Woolworths lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina. The movement spread across the South, and in Rock Hill, about 100 black students staged sit-ins at various downtown lunch counters. The following January 61, students from Friendship Junior Collars College and others picketed McCrory's in Rock Hill to protest the segregated lunch counters of the business. They walked in, they took seats at the counter and ordered hamburgers, soft drinks, and coffee. The students were refused service and ordered to leave. When they didn't, they were arrested. The next day, 10 of them were convicted of trespassing and breach of the peace and sentenced to serve 30 days in jail or pay a $100 fine. One man paid a fine, but the rest chose to take the sentence of 30 days hard labor at the York County Prison Farm. This marked a first in the civil rights movement and sparked the jail no-bail strategy that came to be emulated in other places. A growing number of people participated in sit-ins and marches that continued in Rock Hill through the spring and into the summer. Well, that that's not so good. But in 2007, the city of Rock Hill unveiled an historic marker honoring the Friendship Nine. And yesterday, Judge John C. Hayes III of Rock Hill overturned the convictions of the Nine, stating we cannot rewrite history, but we can write history. At the same occasion, local prosecutor Kevin Brackett apologized to the eight men still living who were in court. And according to the New York Times, that prosecutor said that in most vacated criminal cases, the records related to the conviction are destroyed, but he asked that the records be maintained in this case so the men would be remembered. So thank you to the Friendship Nine for daring to pursue happiness, and it's a good thing to be exonerated. It took way too long, but I'm glad that justice has at last been served.
Well, on that note, let's go back a year to when a polar vortex was a polar vortex, and it was a whole show about winter food stories. Shall we? Let's go back in time. This is going to sound a lot like me. What if Pandora's box, was instead of being a box of chocolates, was a cup of hot chocolate? Then I guess it wouldn't be a box. Never mind. This is Pandora's Lunchbox on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Mike. Pandora's Lunchbox is a show about food and culture, and waiter, there's culture in my frozen soup. I'm looking at wonderground.com, weatherunderground.com, so to speak. And if I told you it was 11.8 degrees Fahrenheit, and it feels like one degree, would you cry? Would you laugh? Would you throw things at your radio? If I told you it was going to be minus three tonight, what would you do? I don't know. But look, it also says here on the screen, this is a little bit of a side note, Kepler-413b wobbly planet discovered. Astronomers have discovered an alien planet that wobbles at such a dizzying rate that its seasons must fluctuate wildly. Maybe we can be like that, and tomorrow it'll be 70 and sunny. But in the meantime, when while that doesn't happen, we can huddle next to the radio together and share some winter food stories. What do you think? Some winter food stories? I'm not talking about reading you a book or reading you a story by the campfire or the... Uh, there's no fire in here. We're, we're safe. But more of like a conceptual deal thing, you know. What you're about to hear now is an authentic recipe for bouillabaisse. Authentic in, in the general sense of the word, meaning uh, not so authentic, but very, very singable. And this won't be the first French soup or French stew we will hear about on this show today. But let's get it started. The DeMarco sisters with this authentic or otherwise recipe for bouillabaisse. Please write down the ingredients. Get ready. You will need to brew some up or stew some up by the end of the show. Boo, 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 boo,
cooking with expedience, here's a couple of added ingredients. Throw in the legs of a frog or two with an onion and a grunion and you let it stew. Moist an oyster and I'll tell you what, throw in some shrimp and some halibut. Add a box of locks and some real mad shad, about a pound of flounder jack. That ain't bad, then you grab any old thing from the bar. You mix it all up with some caviar. You got If you wanna have our admiration, repeat the pledge of the Federation. Crazy for soup. Bull your bass. Bull your bass. We sing the praise of Booyah Bass. Crazy about that crazy Booyah Oh, yeah. Funny how it just got warmer, didn't it, with that song there? I think we do live on a wobbly planet. The temperature's fluctuating wildly. Thank you, the DeMarco sisters, for that. Got eel, clam, grunion, onion, oyster, halibut. I think there's a little bit of Sharknado in there. This is Pandora's Lunchbox, and today some winter food stories, and one of the most hallowed winter food stories is Aesop's fable, The Grasshopper and the Ant, you know. Aesop, according to Wikipedia, was a slave and storyteller believed to have lived in ancient Greece between 620 and 560 BCE. BCE stands for Before Crazy Eddie. I can't imagine life before Crazy Eddie. But... The grasshopper and the ant, sometimes the ants, depending on the version, concerns a grasshopper that has spent the warm months singing while the ant, or the ants, worked to store up food for the winter. When that season arrives, the grasshopper finds itself dying of hunger and begs the ant for food. To its reply, when asked that it had sung all summer, it is rebuked for its idleness and advised to dance during the winter. The story has been used to teach the virtues of hard work. Some versions state a moral at the end along the lines of idleness brings want. To work today is to eat tomorrow. Beware of winter when it comes. A little late for that. The point of view in most retellings of the fable is supportive of the ant, but we'll have an alternate point of view in just a moment. In the meantime, Walt Disney's Grasshopper in the Ants from 1934 features a grasshopper that is spitting some rather vile-looking liquid, looks like chewing tobacco, and uh, manages to lure a hard-working ant who is failing at its job away from its work. Come here, son. Listen. The good book says the Lord provides. There's food on every tree. I see no reason to worry and work. No, sir. Not me. Oh, the world owes us a living. Oh, the world owes us a living. <laughs> you should soil your Sunday pants <laughs> like those other foolish ants. Come on, let's play and sing and dance.
And you hear at the end, the little ant is now spitting some vile liquid too. And so it's a beautiful thing. Arful is just wondering if it was communist, Stalinist, or Calvinist, or Calvin and Hobbes, I think was another possibility. But there it is, the grasshopper and the ant. You know, the little ant gets excited. The, the queen ant comes along and admonishes the ant, and they get back to work. And, well, winter comes along. It's snowing everywhere. It's desolate. Snow, as far as the eye can see, it's cold. It's bitter. It's, it's kind of like Michigan. And then the grasshopper... After this long winter, it turns blue in the face, and he's crawling, sneezing, trying to survive, and goes up to the tree where the ants live and knocks on the door and faints. The ants, meanwhile, are having a party with all the food that they collected all through the summer, and they're eating it in the winter, and they're dancing around, and, well, they see him at the door, and they bring him in, and he doesn't look so good, but they immediately try to help him out. They help him out. They they sit him down with some of his poor cold feet in some nice warm jugs of water because that's what you do when you get a cold and at least you did in 1934 and but then the queen ant comes along oh madam queen wisest of ants don't throw me out please give me a chance with ants just those who work may stay. So take your fiddle. And play. Yes, that was the grasshopper and the ant, the Disney version from 1934. The grasshopper learned its lesson. However, in spite of the common stories, the common versions of the grasshopper and the ant, where the ant is the virtuous one, there was an alternative tradition in which the ant was seen as a bad example, says Wikipedia. This was expressed as a counterfable in Greek and appears as number 166 in the Perry Index. You're writing that down, right? It relates that the ant was once a man who was always busy farming. Not satisfied with the results of his own labor, he plundered his neighbor's crops at night. This angered the king of the gods, I don't remember this in the story, who turned him into what is now an ant. Yet even though the man had changed his shape, he did not change his habits, and still goes around the fields gathering the fruits of other people's labor, storing them up for himself. The moral of the fable is that it is easier to change in appearance than to change one's moral nature. We have applause from the gallery here. Yes. The fable was rarely noticed and though of Aesopic origin has not has not been accepted as such into later collections, but we accept it, don't we? And that guy who plays the fiddle, he's pretty good. And the moral of the story is the guy who plays fiddle, he's pretty good. This is Pandora's lunchbox. This winter food tales today because it helps to keep us warm. Arof is going to get some hot music ready at seven o'clock. I hear I hear a rumor about that. 
In the meantime, at least it's not the turnip winter, huh? A British blockade in World War II cut off imports from abroad to Germany. The winter of 1916 and 1917 was known as the turnip winter because, says Wikipedia, that hardly edible vegetable, usually fed to livestock, was used by people as a substitute for potatoes and meat, which were increasingly scarce. Thousands of soup kitchens were opened to feed the hungry people, who grumbled that the farmers were keeping the food for themselves. Even the army had to cut the rations for soldier. The turnip winter in Germany. Well, the description makes me wonder if the turnips were kind of shriveled up and weren't so good anymore. You know, considering they said they're hardly edible. Well, granted, it's almost 100 years later, and many fancy recipes are more readily available to the average person, but you can see some nice-looking turnip recipes at allrecipes.com including mashed turnips, bacon turnip hash, turnip fries, caramelized turnips, and butternut squash and turnip soup. And I think there are some turnips in the ingredients to this song right here. That's why I love vegetables, you know what you're about. Plant a turnip, get a turnip, maybe you'll get two. That's why I love vegetables, you know that they'll come through. They're dependable, they're befriendable. They're the best pal a parent's ever known. While with children, it's bewildering. You don't know until the seed is nearly grown Just what you sow So plant a carrot, get a carrot, not a Brussels sprout <laughs> That's why I love vegetables, you know what you're about Life is merry, if it's very vegetarian A man who plants a garden is a very happy man Yeah, that was uh, the Fantastics, the original cast recording of the Fantastics, Plant a Radish. I told you there were turnips in there. We're going to get to other things with turnips in them in just a second, but we're also going to cycle back, first of all, in this Wobbly Planet uh, theme we're getting here. Is that the theme? Wobbly Planet, uh, going from one thing to another really rapidly and changing. Anyway, back to French stuff. We had bouillabaisse earlier. 
And a friend of mine, I had to talk with him, he gave me a little uh, a food story for winter. An experience that he had was a little surprising. And this is my buddy Ron, and we were talking about this. He had, in a very cold climate, much like this, but maybe even colder, an experience with his friend, who we'll call Steve. Montreal, and Steve and I had to do an enormous amount of work, but we were on a per diem budget, which we weren't really using because we were just working like crazy and eating bad, really bad food, just keep going while we could work. Were you eating poutine? Uh, no, no, we weren't. It was more like, uh, oh, look, there's a vending machine with snacks. How exciting. <laughs> um but we had this per diem budget that we had not spent, and we finished early, but my friend was a gourmand. He wanted to stay and have this meal in this high-end restaurant whose name escapes me, famous for its wine and its, its French cuisine. And this was all new to me. I had never done anything like this. And there was an enormous snowstorm. And he said, I don't care. Let's go across this great square, even though if it takes us an hour to walk a block. We'll do it. I said, they're not going to be open. <laughs> There's no way they're going to be open. Everything else is closed. And he said, well, if it's closed, then we'll spend another hour and walk back. <laughs> I'd probably be forced to eat the snow, I guess. But we did walk across. And amazingly, they were open. But they were going to close because, what do you know, nobody was there. And my friend was so insistent. He had wanted to go there so much. He said, I will make it worth your while just for us. And he really meant just for him. Because I was like, oh, yes, I believe I'll have that. Oh, yes. Oh, okay, whatever you suggest. So he really wanted the wines. The staff came out and talked wine with him until wee hours. And it's like, wow, I don't really mind if we get drunk because there's no way we're going to freeze to death in the snow. We're filled with antifreeze. Uh, <laughs> but it was quite a fantastic meal that they just kept bringing out things. They would make things that were off the menu. He would ask, could you do this like this? Oh, I believe we could do that like this. And then they would just do it. And it was, he was just driving the show and he was a very charismatic person, Steve. Uh, I, I loved him for that. It was an enormously beautiful evening, just for that reason. I'll never forget that. Do you remember some of the food particularly? Well, they had cassoulet, which was, at the time, I had never even heard of it. And it was just spectacular. Duck confit. It was all these country French standards, backed by these ridiculously expensive wines. He said, price is no object. And, you know, when they, he turned in the bill, uh, they sort of fainted. But he's like, look, we spent like 10 days not eating, and then we ate 10 days' worth in one meal. <laughs> <laughs> What's the difference? And they prob you probably paid their entire normal day's uh, food bill in two people. Oh, absolutely. It was, like, worth it for them to keep the restaurant open, <laughs> even with all the staff. And the, 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 the best part is the staff didn't mind just hanging out with us and Let's just open this wine anyway. What the hell? Uh, it was like, okay. <laughs> so I had so many beautiful things that I never even knew of before, which was quite a, quite a revelation for me. 
So what is cassoulet? Just remind me. It's kind of like a giant French country stew. You know, it, it takes a long time to prepare. It's normally done in these huge, like, cast iron pots, if I remember correctly. But it's quite delicious. It's very flavorful. Uh, it had, uh, I think it had rabbit, if I'm not mistaken. It's one of those great things about those kind of evenings that people put aside every other thing in life just to talk food and wine. You know, we all have to eat, and, well, maybe we all have to have wine, too. But uh, it was just the, the sheer enjoyment of living. Even though you're in the snowy wasteland and with people you know you're never going to see again. That's what I remember about it. It was just like, this is why we live for this pure enjoyment. So where does that fit into the grasshopper and the ant, I wonder? Who's working too hard and finally gets to live off the fruit of their labors? The joy of eating. I like that. I like that a lot. Thank you, Ron, for that story. Now, another food story is the story of the pasty. The modern pasty is strongly associated with Cornwall, England, but its exact origins are unclear. It's also a Michigan favorite. Speaking of French, the English word pasty derives from medieval French for a pie filled with venison, salmon, or other meat, vegetables, or cheese baked without a dish. Pasties have been mentioned in cookbooks throughout the ages. For example, the, version, the earliest version of Le Viandier has been dated to around 1300 and contains several pasty recipes. During the 17th and 18th centuries, though, the pasty became popular with working people in Cornwall, where tin miners and others adopted it because of its unique shape, forming a complete meal that could be carried easily and eaten without cutlery. In a mine, the pasties... Pasties? Hello, that's this a whole other show. The pasties' dense, folded pastry could stay warm for several hours, and if it did get cold, it could be easily warmed on a shovel over a candle. Remember that. Don't just carry a shovel in the winter. Carry a candle and a pasty. There is a belief that the pasty... Here we go again. I think I'm really ready to do a whole new show. That the pastry or a, or the, pas, the pastry on a good pasty, no wonder. The pastry on a good pasty should be strong enough to withstand a drop down a mine shaft. And indeed, the barley flour that was usually used does make a hard, dense pastry. In the tin mines of Devon and Cornwall... Pasties were associated with knockers, spirits said to create a knocking sound that was either supposed to indicate the location of rich veins of ore or to warn of an impending tunnel collapse. To encourage the goodwill of the knockers, miners would leave a small part of the pasty within the mine for the ghosts to eat. A Cornish proverb recounted in 1861 emphasized the great variety of ingredients that were used in pasties by saying, The devil would not come to Cornwall for fear of ending up as a filling in one of those pasties. There was also a West Country schoolboy rhyme that went, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John ate a pasty five feet long, bit it once, bit it twice. Oh my lord, it's full of mice. Ah. Migrating Cornish miners, who were known as Cousin Jacks in the U.S., helped to spread pasties into the rest of the world during the 19th century, including, as you may know, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. In some areas, pasties are a significant tourist attraction, including an annual pasty fest in Calumet, Michigan. 
Pasties in the UP have a particularly unusual history as a small influx of Finnish immigrants followed the Cornish miners in 1864. These Finns and many other ethnic groups adopted the pasty for use in the copper country, copper mines of the UP. Just changed the groove button on the time machine there. That was some Pandora lunchbox type stuff there from a year ago when, as I said before, a polar vortex meant a polar vortex. Kids, do you remember that, kids? Well, I do. This has been Pandora's Lunchbox, and it's also been Pandora's Lunchbox. I've been Mike, and that was Mike, too. And Arwolf will be Arwolf in just a few moments with Face the Music, and it's going to be a wonderful thing. You can watch WCBN on your radio at WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. You can also listen on your interwebs at WCBN.org, and we recommend that you do both things at the same time as often as possible. Thank you for listening, and never, ever stop doing that. I'm going to go out with a little bit of Sugar Man 3, which is a food reference, and this is um, Got to Get Back to My Baby. And we're going to get back to Arwolf in just a second. Mike. Thank you, Mike, for being Mike. And now that I'm on mic, uh, I should say now that I'm in front of the microphone, let me assure you this is WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, 88.3 megahertz. This show is called Face the Music. And it mainly consists of a bunch of old records. I've always felt that if we need to move ahead, we can generally rely on Jimmy Yancey. So let's begin Face the Music with the piano of Jimmy Yancey. Good evening. <laughs> 